Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we're covering um, cases and events from February 2020. We've got a couple of Supreme Court decisions to cover. Um, we've got a bunch of other cases. Um, collective noun for cases, possibly carousel, I don't know, or just sort of S- Scroll of up. cases, a library. Yeah, stacked up cupboard, I think, in, in my house. That's not very, doesn't trip off the tongue. Um, but we're going to be covering detention, rights of British citizens to live with their parents in the UK or not, as the case might be. Um, asylum, EU law, human rights, citizenship, future of the immigration system, the whole the whole lot, basically. Um, I want to first start, though, um, just talk a little bit about the coronavirus and sort of what we might be seeing um, over the next days, weeks, months. Now, obviously, it's a sort of developing situation. We just don't know what's going to happen, but already we're seeing international travel closing down. It seems likely there's going to be um, fewer visa applications being made, so it's going to slow down in, in immigration work for solicitors in that sense. It also seems likely, although we, we haven't had any concrete announcements yet, that there will be fewer um, hearings in the immigration tribunal. There's going to be a slowdown in work for barristers in that sense, and also for the, the prep that's necessary by solicitors. Um, it looks like we might well see immigration concessions reducing the need for immigration applications or extension applications by foreign nationals who are already in the UK. And we've seen that um, with Chinese nationals so far at the time that I'm speaking. Um, we might well see that extended to others, although we're not sure about that. And then in the kind of longer term, we can expect that there's going to be a sort of slowdown in the pace of developments. Um, for example, over the future immigration system, we might well look at um, Brexit, perhaps um, the, the transition period being extended. I mean, it's very early days to be talking about that. But, you know, if civil servants aren't able to um, sort of see each other physically and have meetings, if we're not able to sort of physically meet with um, EU negotiators and so on, um, we're going to see less work being done, essentially, and also resources um one would expect being being sort of refocused onto to more urgent areas. Um, so development of the immigration, new immigration system, uh, which we will we will come to at the end. Although it seems like that could be you know, a lot further off than 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 we're expecting already. Um, that may well be slowed down as well. And this this is going to be clearly a very difficult time for everybody for um, for all our clients. We're going to see British citizens stranded abroad, and already we're seeing that um, family members ended up stranded abroad or or, the, or separated from British citizens. Um, and the limitations on travel are going to have consequences further down the line as well um, in immigration sense about you know, the number of absences from the UK. If somebody isn't able to get back into the UK, for example, um, when they come to apply for settlement or naturalisation, are those absences going to be counted against them? Will we see some sort of concession on that in future? Who knows? I mean, these are just some of the sort of early thoughts that are, are coming to us um, at these stages. But it's, it's, it's worth kind of trying to follow developments. We're going to be keeping everybody updated as, as and when we see um, updates coming through. And we'll be providing analysis um, where we've got anything that we can usefully add that we th- that we feel we can add to that. So keep um, keep watching this space, I guess. Yeah, just to say that we uh, work remotely by large anyhow. We don't have a physical office that will be affected by self-isolation or anything. So business as usual where, where free movement is concerned. And indeed, this podcast, you might imagine that CJ and I are huddled together in some studio somewhere, but um, we, we do these on Skype. We record this and then kind of mash it together with software afterwards. So um, yeah, business is normal on, on, on free movement. 
Absolutely. So let's crack on with our monthly review. We'll go first to the Supreme Court. We've got two cases, as you mentioned. And the first says that detaining someone pending deportation is unlawful if the underlying deportation order is unlawful. That is the decision in DN Rwanda 2020 UKSC 7. It seems like a common sense result, but there was Court of Appeal authority going the other, the other way, uh, the case of Draga, and that's no longer to be followed as a result of this decision. The facts were pretty of this case were pretty unusual, fairly niche, because the deportation order was unlawful because the regulations making it possible were struck down by the courts in, in separate proceedings, which which doesn't happen every day. But but does the judgment have wider application, Colin, despite the facts being being fairly niche? Yeah, the, the Court of Appeal had dug itself into a real hole with this stuff and they've been sort of saved from themselves by the by the Supreme Court here. And I think you're right to say it is pretty unusual. It's the the only example I can I can think of off the top of my head of, of a statutory instrument in immigration law being um struck down by the courts. And it was years ago that, that happened. It was the case of EN Serbia back in I think two thousand and six or something like that, two thousand and eight maybe. Um so it's sort of quite a historic event which generates the proceedings in this case. But it does have um, wider implications for other situations that could come up. It doesn't mean that where a deportation order is later um, overturned by the tribunal or on judicial review, that any detention in the meantime is automatically unlawful. It certainly doesn't mean that. But if a deportation order was unlawfully made, um, as opposed to just wrongly made on the facts, um, then it, it could give rise to a, a claim for unlawful detention. I've been sort of struggling to think of circumstances where that might be, but there could be some sort of procedural flaw in the way that the deportation order was made. It could be in breach of a legal provision like Section 7 of the, the 1971 Act, which provides um, protection from deportation for Windrush generation migrants, or it, you know, it could be some other public law error. Then certainly that, that opens the possibility for a, a, a claim for unlawful detention. Turning then to the other Supreme Court case, which is only barely to do with immigration law, uh, really. It's about a man who was given a nightly curfew under immigration powers, or purportedly under immigration powers, because as it turns out, the Home Office was acting unlawfully, uh, Kelsapriz, and the uh, man in question was falsely imprisoned, uh, confirmed by the Supreme Court uh, that that was the case. The cases are Jala and Secretary of State's 2020 UKSC 4. Uh, Colin, as I say, it sort of just happens to be about a migrant, I guess, that the case really seemed to be about like common law protection for human rights. Yeah, and, it, and it's an encouraging case um, in, in that sense. It's sort of um, and the Supreme Court saying that where sort of common law principles of, of imprisonment are, are more generous or more protective of the citizen than um, Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights, then the, the higher standards prevail, which is um, you know, reassuring. And it, it's a case that it doesn't have much sort of direct impact, I think, on day-to-day sort of immigration cases, but it's certainly reassuring to see this. And, um, you know, the, the pretty, and I think they actually used the word unreal arguments that were advanced by the Home Office, that being subjected to a curfew, which if you broke, you'd have been committing an offence, um, wasn't imprisonment. It is, you know, it's reassuring to see that those arguments were given short shrift. Yeah, very much called out by Lady Hale in one of her last hurrahs. Next, then, a case on unlawful detention following on from, from that one. The 
Court of Appeal wants lawyers to use the County Court or Queen's Bench Division to seek damages for unlawful detention rather than the Admin Court. Um, nothing necessarily new there. Uh, Lord Justice Dingaman's just reminding lawyers about the civil procedure rules, which say that a claim for judicial review uh, may include a claim for damages, restitution, or the recovery of a sum, but may not seek such a remedy alone. Uh, ZA Pakistan 2020 EWCA Civ 146. So it, it basically, as I read it, Colin, once you've got your client out of detention, you need to take things out of the admin court. Is that about it? that? That's the that's the sort of gist of it, isn't it? And it, and it's a it can be sort of tactically a little bit difficult to know when that time has come because. Um, you know, it, it, its cases aren't necessarily straightforward in that sense. And it, it's legitimate for a case to start um, in the admin court. Um, but it's, if the unlawfulness is conceded or even if the person's released, then it, it becomes you know, important to think about whether it's time to transfer to the QBD or to the to the county court for the assessment of damages. Okay, we now have a couple of cases on the relevance of having a British child in an immigration appeal. We'll, we'll consider them together because there's different contexts, but they were decided by the same panel of judges, I think, around the same time. So it was, it was thematically similar. And the first is in the context of entry clearance. And what happened here was that a British man met a Sri Lankan woman in Sri Lanka. He stayed there. Uh, they got married and had two kids, both of whom are British by descent, uh, inheriting citizenship from their father. The family then wanted to move to the UK, and the father and children were obviously entitled to because they are all British. But the upper tribunal found in this case that the mother was not entitled to entry clearance, so she, she couldn't come with them. And that case is SD, British Citizen Children Entry Clearance, Sri Lanka, 2020 UK UT 43 IAC. Yeah, there's not a lot to say. I and mean, the, the outcome won't come as a surprise to lawyers who sort of are familiar with these rules. It's it's uncomfortable to see it being stated in such stark terms, though. And the fact is that um, you know the impact on children just isn't a major consideration as far as the Home Office and, sadly, the Tribunal are concerned. Is, is, is the critical factor in this one the fact that they were looking to enter the UK rather than remain? Like if, if the mother had been in the UK on a visa and met the father and given birth here and then applied on human rights grounds, would that have been a, a very different case? Yeah, I, I don't know whether the outcome would have been different, but certainly the, the set of rules is more helpful. And um, I guess it's the, the rules are drafted to reflect maintenance of the status quo. So if you're already in the UK then the rules provide you with these kind of extra tests to to potentially enable you to remain together. Whereas if you're already outside the UK, then the Home Office doesn't, the, the, the rules don't include those kinds of mechanisms, um, presumably on the justification that, you know, you, you're already together outside the UK. It's not a question of separating or having to relocate. It's just maintaining the status quo. Um, and it, it may be the case that, you know, if the, um, rules that do apply within the UK, the sort of exceptional circumstances paragraphs um, had been applied in this case, that the outcome might have been different. Um, but unfortunately, that's not the way it works. The second case then about the significance of British children is in the context of deportation and the upper tribunal finding, uh, again, that it's when it comes to the unduly harsh test in deportation cases, that having a British child isn't 
isn't vastly important, it's not game-changing. So they say it's a relevant factor, but, quote, it is not necessarily a weighty factor, all depends on the facts, end quote. And that case is Patel, sorry, I'll just give the citation, and it's uh, Patel, Brit- British citizen child, deportation, 2020, UKUT, 45 IAC. Yeah, again, I had nothing really to add on this one. It's I just wish the tribunal could phrase some of these things a little bit better. I mean, it doesn't make any difference to the substance, I realise that, but talking about you know, British citizenship, British citizen children not being a weighty factor. It's just, you know, there are other ways of expressing these things and talking about these things. And it's, um, it's unfortunate to see that. It's cold and clinical for sure. Let's look at asylum. There is a new country guidance case on Iran and specifically on the position of Christian converts in Iran. The headline finding, I suppose, is that a convert to Christianity seeking to openly practice that faith in Iran would face a real risk of persecution. There are obviously then various nuances about the decision. It's quite a long head note, um, stuff about concealing your faith and, and such like, and practitioners with such cases will have to, to read up on the detail. Colin, uh, let me just give the citation. I might bring you in. It's uh, PS Christianity Risk Iran CT 2020 UK UT 46 IAC. Yeah, it's a welcome decision, and it, it, this this is one of those examples where we've seen you know, really old, out of date, historic country guidance cases that nobody's paying any attention to, very belatedly being overturned by the tribunal. It kind of highlights some of the absurdities of the country guidance system. Um, but it, it's a good it's a good outcome. I think um, yeah, I've been doing a few of these cases recently, and it kind of matches with the outcomes from cases that were already happening. It's kind of the country guidance catching up with um, the first tier, frankly. Um, it, it's good to see some recognition in this case of how difficult these cases can be to assess the the difficulty of assessing um, the genuineness of, of of a person's conversion. Although we don't we don't get a lot of that, frankly, in the decision, but we get a little bit. But the, the standout thing is the Home Office arguments in this case, which were just just astonishing. And uh, the Home Office was seriously arguing that. Um, being forced to sign a document renouncing your faith wasn't an interference with that faith, didn't amount to persecution, and that there was no need to worship in, in community with others. And it's just, you know, for, for, for somebody to find themselves saying those things out loud in court is, uh, yeah, it's, it's surprising. Let's just look. Uh, there's a very brief mention we want to give to a second asylum type case this month. This is AB and Ken. Kent County Council 2020 WHC 109 admin. It is about age assessments and the High Court just sort of giving another push in the direction of giving asylum seekers the benefit of the doubt if they claim to be aged under 18. In this case, social workers thought that uh, the person AB was aged between 20 and 25 and therefore denied him a full age assessment. But Mrs. Justice Thornton held that this was wrong because that initial assessment, 20 to 25, was was too close to comfort, too close to him possibly being 18, and he should have got the full age assessment. Uh, let's then do a case on the Surrender Singh route, which is still with us for now in, in EU law. And this case, uh, I think, just confirms the basic premise of the route, really, which is that the family uh, using to use the route must have genuinely resided in an EU country and created or fortified their family life there. And it is called uh, Kur and others and Secretary of State's uh, 2020 EWCA Civ 98. And Colin, like the family here had moved to Bulgaria for three weeks and got a residence card and then thought that they could come back to the UK and trigger the Surrender Singh principle. 
why did they think that? Hmm. Good question. I, I, I have to pick you up on this. You're exaggerating slightly. It was actually oh, okay. 19 days, apparently. So it's not, it's not even three weeks. And it's like, it, it almost reads as if it's a factual scenario in home office guidance where, you know, the, the test isn't met. And if I was reading the guidance, I think, well, you know, obviously not. Um, but the, there were some quite imaginative arguments put about, um, the McCarthy number two case and whether just the, the fact of existence of a residence card um, meant that the family should be sort of admitted together. And, and perhaps unsurprisingly, those, those ambitious arguments didn't, um, didn't prevail. So yeah, it, it's not, um, it's not a case that in any way, I, I think, modifies or, or, um, undermines Surinder Singh rights. It was just, um, you know, it's an unlikely set of facts where people have basically gone on abroad for no longer than a holiday. And then we're trying to base, um, Surinder Singh rights on that, which was, which was never going to work. Next up is the issue of tax discrepancies, which I think we've now covered on the podcast several times. Uh, the Home Office, this is where the Home Office has been refusing settlements to people on Tier 1 general visas who appear to have besides their, their self-employed income. And there's quite a bit of case law and guidance on these refusals where they are based on paragraph 3225 of the immigration rules. But in this case, the refusal was under paragraph 276B, which is worded very similarly, uh, but applies to people going for settlement on the 10-year-long residence routes. And the, the takeaway from the case is that there seems to be much fewer constraints on the Home Office if they refuse a tax discrepancy case under this provision, 276B, rather than paragraph 325. Uh, and it is Tahir Yassin and Secretary of State 2020 EWCA Civ 157. Yeah, and I think as a result, we can imagine that the Home Office is going to switch their refusals to this paragraph rather than the other. And as, as, as Nath says in her write-up of this case, it's really hard to see what the difference is between the two paragraphs. Uh, certainly in terms of the wording, there is a difference, I guess, in terms of the context, you know, the general grounds for refusal about the circumstance of refusing, whereas 276B is about the qualifications for sort of, well, the, the requirements for qualifying. But it doesn't, it's hard to see how that really makes a difference and why the protections, um, should be any lower. But, you know, there we go. And as a consequence, um, I think we're going to be seeing more refusals under that paragraph. Seems like a fair prediction. A rather bleak decision then from the European Court of Human Rights, which has backed the Spanish government in its policy of mass pushbacks of migrants entering its territory. Uh, Spain, as uh, you may know, has a tiny bit of territory in North Africa, uh, Melilla, also, uh, well, there's two, but th this case was about the one called Melilla. It's surrounded by massive fences to keep out migrants and uh, groups of often desperate people try to scale those fences to try to claim get into Spanish territory and then claim asylum or, or move on into mainland Europe. Spain has been just chucking them straight out again without giving any consideration to whether they might be refugees or whether they have any rights that mean they can't be removed. And the Grand Chamber of the Strasbourg Court has now seems to say that's okay. The citation ND and NT versus Spain uh, application numbers six seven five fifteen and eight six nine seven fifteen yeah it's a really disappointing decision and it, it seems to run completely counter to a bunch of other previous decisions we've seen recently which have been quite protective of of migrants rights and state obligations um and then there's this just huge carve out um that that the court seems to create here um because 
it's the applicants who place themselves in jeopardy. They, they, they say um, taking advantage of large numbers and using force didn't make use of legal procedures for gaining lawful entry. Well, you know, there aren't any legal procedures for gaining entry to most um, EU countries. You can't, generally speaking, apply for asylum from outside the territory. Um, certainly that's that's the case for the UK. So um, it, it looks like the court has basically blown a huge hole in the protections that it's it's previously created in this area. I think that came down not long before the uh, Greek government decided to suspend its asylum obligations when, when faced with um, an influx of, of people so uh, but uh, unfortunate timing in that sense let's just uh, quickly mention it, it, it's received blanket media coverage um, but uh, the Shamima Begum case was in the special immigration appeals commission uh, this month and uh, the first part of her appeal against deprivation of citizenship has failed uh, Sayak considers that uh, cutting a long story short uh, she is a Bangladeshi citizen as a matter of Bangladesh law Therefore, she uh, would not be stateless if her British citizenship were removed. And so it seems likely that deprivation of citizenship will be upheld, I suppose, unless the judges go on to second guess the national security evidence, which is the second part of the appeal, which doesn't seem very likely, does it? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. And the, 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 the right of appeal in deprivation cases um, is very, very broadly expressed. So the tribunal, um, in this case, it'd be SIAC because of the national security provisions has quite wide um, sort of discretion about how it deals with these appeals against deprivation. And, um, you know, it, th- there are a lot of factors that might be considered, which could be considered positive factors as well about whether deprivation is appropriate in these circumstances where somebody was actually born in the UK um, where they left the UK at a fairly early age and where they're living in such dire circumstances. Those are all considerations that can be taken into account in the appeal. Um, and it may be, yeah, I might be being hopelessly optimistic here, but it, it might be that, um, the, the tribunal, in this case, SIAC, um, actually consider those in her favor and, and hold that, um, you know, it's, it's not appropriate on the facts. But whatever we see as a sort of final decision from SIAC on this, it seems inevitable this is going to be going up to the higher courts, presumably the courts of appeal, but perhaps even with a, a leapfrog appeal up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. There's a long way to run with this, this one yet. Uh, finally, we'll just talk briefly about the points-based system and the government's paper about the proposed changes uh, from the 1st of January 2021. This was the system formerly known as the Australian-style points-based system um, for economic migration, but all reference to it being Australia-style has now been dropped. It's now simply called the points-based system, as indeed is the current system of economic migration, but that's, that's by the by. Um, the, the changes summed up, they would involve a bit more flexibility in terms of how to earn points towards a work visa, but not very much. You would basically be able to come in on a lower salary if you're being hired for a shortage job or if you have a PhD. So it's very much tweaks to the existing tier two regime. And it was due to be implemented via changes to the immigration rules in the next few months. But that was all before coronavirus. And goodness knows where where we're at with that now, really. I don't know, Colin, you, you said at the start that maybe it'll all just be long-fingered. Uh, who knows? Who knows? It's hard to get too excited about this um, for, for, well, for me, for two reasons. One, because we just, you know, it seems 
unlikely at the moment that it's going to be implemented by the the date suggested. Um, and secondly, because actually uh, the changes, as you said, they're just not that significant. The huge change is the end of free movement and the fact that any EU citizens wanting to enter the UK after this system gets implemented, whenever that might be, will have to essentially comply with the existing provisions of, of UK immigration law. But those provisions aren't being adjusted that much by this, um, by this proposed way forward. Um, I suppose the other, the other big change again, I mean, sort of lawyers and journalists getting excited about, you know, the income thresholds and stuff like that. But to my mind, the, the other big news on this one, I suppose, is the, um, is the government's intention not to introduce um, temporary or low skilled um, work routes. Although they say that with sort of one sentence and then with another sentence, they expand the seasonal agricultural worker scheme to 10,000 places. So, you know, there are clearly exceptions already being made to that general principle. And we're, we're going to see some pretty furious lobbying, um, depending on the impact of coronavirus, I suppose, um, for, from various different sectors of the economy on their need to be treated like um like the agricultural sector and their their exceptional circumstances requiring them to be able to recruit lower skilled workers from abroad and so on so yeah it's, it's difficult to see um difficult to see when this is going to happen um and the changes aren't that significant um in in my view what is significant is that free movement's ending but we already knew that yeah i suppose what that means for employers in particular is all of a sudden uh, those who rely who don't need a, a sponsor license because they only hire eu workers will now need a sponsor license if they want to continue recruiting um anyone from abroad so that'll, that'll basically bring a lot more employers into the sponsorship system we think and nicola carter has done a piece for us about the costs of sponsoring someone for a visa which again uh, will now affect EU recruits as well as non-EU. So something for employers to start thinking about, um, assuming uh, this is eventually brought in after the crisis and, and the post just might help help you walk your clients through the potential costs of, of sponsorship and getting a license. Um, it was also cited by the House of Commons Library in a recent briefing, so that's also nice. Yeah, it's always nice when we get cited by the House of Commons Library. They, they and you know, it's not the not the first time that. So no, it's a really it's a really useful post from Nicola, and it, she does a really comprehensive job at sort of talking talking you through what's going on there. Okay, so we hope that's been helpful for this month, and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.